Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, I'm one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and I'm one of the founders of Dragon Bites. This week we're going to be doing a reflective practice episode with you. I was joined by Dr. Malcolm Gajraj, who's one of the PICO consultants based in Cardiff and happens to be an avid medical educator. We decided to take a slightly different approach to this reflective practice episode. What you're going to be listening in on is a simulated conversation between myself and Dr. Gajraj, with him playing the position of my educational supervisor who has noticed a reflective entry in my e-portfolio that he wanted to discuss with me further. He uses this as an opportunity to first check that I'm okay, second to give some teaching around the subject, and third to make me think a bit deeper about how I would write a reflective entry in the future. It's worth noting that the patient who we discuss in the scenario is entirely fictional. Anyway, let's get started. Hi Asim, come on in. Oh, hi, hi Malcolm. Yeah, thanks for seeing me. No problem at all. Um, I, I can see from your portfolio you've had a bit of a bit of a stressful time recently, a bit of a stressful event. Uh, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no, it was a bit of a yeah, it was a bit of a do the other day. Mm. Um, yeah. But are you sure you're all right about that? Yeah, I mean, I was really I, stressed me out a lot at the time, and I've been thinking about it a bit since. But you know, the the important thing is the teenager's fine now. So I feel much better about the whole thing. Okay, well look, um, stressful things happen. So if, if they do and you need to talk about it, then you know you, you should. Uh, you know my door's always open. You can come and talk to me. Oh, thanks. That's really appreciated. No problem at all. Um, but look, we you know we we've mentioned that uh, reflection you've written in your portfolio, and I just wondered you, if we could talk it through. Yeah, you're right. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, well, let's just start by you briefly talking me through what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I put it down on the portfolio just because it was an important case. And I wanted to get my thoughts down as soon as possible. Basically, there was this teenager, known asthmatic, who came into ED and I think was recognised at the door as being really, at um, triage even, that was being really poorly pretty much immediately. So the triage nurse just took them straight through to recess and called called me through and the consultant was there at the time and heard the story so I said that they'd come along as well so it's both my consultant and I there and this um, teenager turned out to be the most unwell asthmatic I'd ever seen so was when we walked in was really working hard with their breathing Um, we we had to escalate their management really quickly so started on our usual stuff you know um, back-to-back nebulizers straight away Um, but uh, we put in a cannula pretty much immediately rather than waiting for anything to happen. Drew up some IV magnesium and a few other medications to try and get things going with them. And before I even realised it, the consultant was already on the phone with a PICU consultant and escalating management saying, oh, we might well need a PICU opinion on, on this patient. So um, I don't know what they'd spotted really, but but that, that's what happened. And then the PICU consultant came down while we were still giving all our regular treatment. And before we knew it, essentially that they were intubated, ventilated, taken up to PICU for ongoing management. I really, I've not seen that unwell and asthmatic before. Mm, yeah. So as I said, pretty stressful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty stressful. 
Can we just discuss a few of the, the, the details that you noted down? Yeah, just to, sure. to talk it through a little bit more. So one of the things you've mentioned uh, and is in your um, reflection is the fact that the triage nurse took the patient straight round to recess. Uh, do you know what the process was that um, was involved there? Why, why did she do that? Yeah, so, so I hadn't ca caught the entire story at the time, but from, from what I recall, the triage nurse saw the person as they came into the triage room and just immediately said, this person looks really unwell. So before doing OBS or anything, just took them straight through to recess um, and then called us through while they were setting up all the OBS and everything. So I think it was largely just, just eyeballing the patient. Gosh. Um, so, so purely subjective? Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and do you think that is valid? Is that a good reason to take someone around to recess? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, anecdotally, for what it's worth, I mean, the nurses everywhere are really good. And when they say someone's unwell, 99 times out of 100, they, they've normally got their finger on the money. So, yeah, no, I think it is valid because gut feeling matters. And, and it's in it's on scoring systems as well, isn't it? You know, if you if you if you look at a scoring system, um, there's always a mark for clinical suspicion. So it must be recognised. You're right, there is a mark for clinical suspicion. Yeah, and I guess in as paediatricians, it's parental anxiety as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay, so that that's um, that's perfectly reasonable. Um, the next thing I just wanted to pick up on is, is something you mentioned in, in your reflection. You said that the, the gases were worrying you. Um, and I just wondered why that was and, and what other observations were available to you at the time. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the gas, um, you know, they've become acidotic, and I, I think they've, from what I remember, their PCO2 was starting to climb a little bit as well. Um, and I think um, from what I could recall from, uh, you know, talks I've had previously on asthma, that's when you should be getting worried about a patient with asthma because it's a sign that they might be tiring out. Uh, the only other obs I can remember off the top of my head is they were already on a, f um, you know, prior to having the back to backs, they were on a 15 litre. Um, non-rebreather oxygen um, and their stats were at 100% and, but I don't know what it was before the oxygen was put on. I suspect mm. it was lower but I can't, I can't remember. Okay so the CO2 was, was going up a bit mm. yeah um, so just talk me through that is, is that something you've, you've seen before? Uh, no not in asthma no um, so I've seen it in in like unwell neonatal patients mm -hmm. and things but not not in asthma normally their co2 is low if anything because they're hyperventilating and blowing it all off okay so why do they hyperventilate normally uh, well, well it's not uh, meta it's not going to be metabolically driven I, I assumed it's because they're because they're hypoxic so so they're trying to reoxygenate okay. themselves and have you seen lots of hypoxic asthmatic patients or hyperventilating are they generally hypoxic to be honest not not that much like their sats are like high mid high 80s or low 90s and then it normally picks up with a bit of oxygen yeah so, so it's not hypoxia that's necessarily driving it is it no no so it, it, it may be you know lots of intrinsic factors in terms of their ability to breathe um, but the other thing is how do they feel you know when they're well enough to talk to you how how do they feel about their breathing that it's not good enough they often can't speak in a whole sentence yeah and they feel they can't breathe yeah yeah so i guess it induces a sense of panic doesn't it and, and they generally breathe faster than, than they need to and, and hyperventilate mm. so you're right most asthmatics have either low or normal carbon dioxide levels don't they mm. um, 
and you, you mentioned something about when the, the carbon dioxide is going up that it's a worry mm. um, and what is the specific thing you're worried about well i mean it's it's, it's it goes down because they're hyperventilating um, and they're hyperventilating as I just learned because they're you know um, panicking and there's all all these stress responses going off. So if the carbon dioxide is going up, it means that their respiratory rate must be going down. So it might be a sign that they're tiring out and unable to hyperventilate in the way that they'd want to. Yeah. So so it can be quite worrying that they're not able to breathe at a normal rate. They're actually potentially getting tired. So so yeah, quite right. And and the oxygen levels of 100% clearly not enough to reassure you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, just uh, another thing to, to pick up on. You, you mentioned you were drawing up other drugs to use, and one of the drugs you mentioned in your reflection was amiodarone. And I just wondered if you could talk me through why you would, would draw up amiodarone. Did I write amiodarone? Okay, did I did not mean to write amiodarone. So it was meant to be aminophilin. Okay. Um, so we'd drawn up aminophilin. Um, the idea there being that um, we were giving salbutamol via the nebulizers, we were giving magnesium IV. Um, we've drawn up hydrocortisone as well. So so the only adjunct that, that was left in our guideline that we could use was aminophilin. So that's why we had that at the ready. In the end, we, we couldn't give it because of the way things turned, but, but that's mm. what we were thinking. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was just an easy mistake to make, isn't it? Amiodarone, aminophilin. Yeah. Um, but you can see potentially the, the consequences of, of if you had drawn up amiodarone. Um, yeah. might not have been ideal. No, no, exactly. It might have been a nightmare. Uh, and I feel... That was probably a bit like, oh God, if I made that mistake, just writing it in a reflection, that's probably not great in a more stressful scenario. Yeah, easy to make simple mistakes in a, in a stressful situation, isn't it? Mm. Hard to, to think clearly. Yeah, or it can be, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you said it was amiodarone, not amiodarone, because I, I, I wasn't sure why you'd want to use amiodarone in that <laughs> situation. Um, so that, that's all really, really good, and, and you've clearly learned a lot from that. But I, I just wonder, can we explore a little bit further? Of course. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've, I've seen that, um, you know, you recognise that this was life-threatening asthma. Um, you've, you've read about the guidelines in the BTS and, and the NICE guideline, and, and clearly that's going to be good for your clinical practice, you know, recognising and managing life-threatening asthma. But I just wonder, how did you feel at the time? And, you know, how do you think that affected you as, as a you know, clinician in your own right and also as part of the team? Um... I suppose if, if I'm being honest about it, what I felt at the time was was panic more than anything else. Um, I'm used to, when I'm in ED, because I'm normally in my element, I've normally seen every clinical condition dozens upon dozens of times before. I'm normally used to being like ready and prepared and, and on the front foot, but this time I felt very much on the back foot. Um, pushed into a room and then there's a very, very unwell patient, far more unwell than I'm used to. Um, there were decisions being made that was be, were being made before I'd come to the same conclusion, and that made me worry a bit more. So when the consultant thought it's time to step up to the PICU consultant and ask for their help, they'd made that decision before I'd recognised how unwell that child was. And similarly, when the decision was made to intubate, that was made before I'd quite clocked on that that decision needed to be made. So I think that makes me worry a little bit as well, because there'll be points where mm -hmm. uh, what I worry about is, would I make those decisions myself if I were um, in the same situation without those supports there? And the other thing, when it comes to communicating within the team, um, I don't know if this example is illustrative at all, but it, 
because of because of the panic I was in, there was this point where the PICU consultants, who, when they first come in, they they'd mistaken me for perhaps an anaesthetic reg or something, and asked me to draw up some some medication for for sedation and and, and intubation and, and that sort of thing. I had no idea what drugs they were referring to. I'd not drawn these sorts of meds up before. But rather than just telling them that I don't know any about any of these things, you're confusing me. I'm one of the PZD regs. In my panic, I just walked up to someone who I knew, one of the nurses, and said do you mind just sorting out these meds for me? And which I know in itself probably didn't have that much of an impact, but in terms of my inability to communicate effectively, I don't think that was a very good showing. Mm. And, and do you think that meant that the team was working as well as it could? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is, I, I suppose they probably weren't as efficient, uh, or maybe I wasn't as efficient. Uh, I don't think it's fair for me to put that on the team as a whole. But I think... I think when when communications come down like that and and it's suppressed in some way, that's not a that's not a sign of a well functioning, well greased mm. team. So, can you think of examples when you've been in stressful situations when the communication has worked better? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in in ED, most of the time there's not really any trouble with communication. Everyone knows what their roles are. If someone's got a problem, they'll just say what the problem is. In fact. Even with myself, if there's something, if I'd run into that that exact same scenario in in almost any other resuscitation, I'd have probably felt really comfortable saying what I wanted to say. I think it was just a sense of panic I was feeling that stops me. So maybe it was just that these other scenarios felt a bit more controlled. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I guess if I think about it, um, one of the examples which can be extremely stressful is cardiac arrest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and pediatric cardiac arrest, you think, would be extremely stressful. But my experience has been that usually someone takes charge and is a team leader and is allocating roles to people who can perform them. And the reason people can perform them is that everyone knows the the algorithms. Everyone knows what needs to be done, when it needs to be done and how to do it. And it just makes everything run relatively easily. And because people have the algorithm at their fingertips, um, it can work. So what can be or could be a very stressful situation doesn't inhibit that communication. Whereas I guess the difference in this situation is that sense of not knowing exactly what was going to happen next um, and, and unfamiliar processes. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I hadn't really thought of it like that, to be honest. But yeah, there's something really comforting, isn't there, when, when you hit an algorithm that's black and white. If, this, if X happens, you do Y, and if Z happens, you do A. I don't know why I've started in such a strange part of the alphabet. Um, but when it comes to these grey areas where which don't neatly fall into guidelines or algorithms, then yeah, I suppose there is a there's not that communal sense of we all know what's happening. No. But likewise, not everything can neatly fall into an algorithm, can it? And, mm. and if you go back to this patient in particular, and note you said, you know, that intubation was carried out early and it's something you'll remember. Mm. Um, and and of course sometimes in life threatening asthma you do need to intubate early. But I wonder if you really thought about why that PIC consultant was called um, when they were, and also why the PIC consultant chose to intubate at that time, and, and you know what the, the risks and benefits were of intubating rather than waiting a bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. I mean, I, I'll say what my impressions were because it wasn't really made um, explicit, you know, in, in, at any point to me. But when when the our the ED consultant called for the PICU consultant. That was the point where we'd been giving uh, the first lot of salbutamol nebs. We'd already had the IV magnesium coming going through. 
and the patient was continuing to deteriorate. There was no turnaround. It wasn't, it, we hadn't even held ground, you know, they were getting worse. So I think the, the consultant recognized that if this trajectory continues, this is going to be a really bad situation. So I thought they'd call the PICU consultants early. I feel even less confident about how, knowing how the PICU consultant decided when to intubate, but it was towards the end of us giving hydrocortisone, we'd given a second lot of NEBS, all the magnesium had run through. There was essentially not much left that we could give IV or using conventional means. Um, and I suppose there was a sort of almost, if it could have been like a degree of inevitability that, that we might need to intubate this child. So I get the, uh, the impression I got was let's intubate now in a sort of semi-elective calm manner rather than waiting till the patient crashes and we absolutely have to intubate. I think that's, I think that's what, that's the impression I got anyway. Okay. And I think that that's reasonable. So, so you, you've identified the fact that, you know, if you, if intubation hadn't occurred at that point, there was a risk of the patient crashing uh, and having an emergency intubation, which is of course much more stressful, much more difficult. Um, but what do you think meant that that waiting wasn't really an appropriate option was there any was there, were there potential advantages to waiting well yeah i mean so i suppose if we had even though they had been deteriorating at, to that point we hadn't really completed our conventional treatment so we hadn't given the iv aminophilin we hadn't completed the back-to-back -back nebulizers by that stage and there was maybe there was a chance that they would have turned around, which would have avoided the need for intubation and ventilation and all the risks that are associated with those. So, you know, if we'd have held off, there's a chance that we we might have turned things around before that needs mm. to be needed to have happened. And, and what are those risks? Well, I mean, intubating someone, you have to give them all their, you know, pre-intubation medications. And that's always, you know, there's risks of them arresting because there's all sorts of risks with those anaesthetic agents. Um, and then being ventilated, uh, um, that's never really good for someone, especially some someone with asthma. So you might be thinking about risks of air leaks and things like that. So there, you know, there are risks to having to intubate and ventilate, and I suppose they will have to balance them. Yeah. So, so you're quite right. I mean, you know, asthmatics um, particularly are at risk of, of arrest at intubation. Mm. Um, they are in a stress state, so you know they've got high levels of circulating catecholamines, and anaesthetic agents will have tons of that effect. Um, you might unmask their, their relative hypovolemia. Um, they've got a raised intrathoracic pressure, so cardiac filling can be impaired. Um, and giving them a negatively anotropic drug in the form of an anaesthetic agent is a big risk. So, so it is a big risk factor. And you mentioned air leaks, and, and you're right, you know, tension pneumothorax is a concern um, in asthmatics, as you know, and even more so if you, if you ventilate them. Mm. Um, and, you know, Going back to that, what happened after the patient was was intubated? What was what was the gas like? It looked it looked a lot worse. So when we repeated the gas, I think the CO two was in the twenties or something. It looked terrible. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think that was? Well, I, I mean, I've assumed that it's because they'd been clinically deteriorating up till that point. So maybe we just hadn't caught up with them in time. Well, there's certainly a case to be said they might have been deteriorating. You, you mentioned maybe the, the breathing rate was slowing down, so yes, I'm sure ventilation wasn't as good and the carbon dioxide may well have climbed, um, but it had gone up into the 20s, hasn't it? So really significant. So, you know, what, what, what do you understand by the difference between what we do in terms of positive pressure ventilation and, and the patient breathing? 
Well, it's, I mean, breathing is like it's negative pressure ventilation, isn't it? As the thorax expands and the pressure within the intrathoracic pressure drops, that's what draws the air in. Yeah, and, and positive pressure, you're, you're actually applying more pressure. And remember, the asthmatics are, are gas-trapping, aren't they? They're not able to expire fully. So they've got positive pressure in their chest already, and then we're ventilating on top. Mm -hmm. um, so adding to that pressure, and it's very difficult to ventilate asthmatics because of that. Right. Uh, really tricky. So again, um, you know, evidenced by the, the blood gases, and I'm sure the blood gases were worse after intubation than before. Yeah. Um, so demonstrating how tricky it can be. And I, you know, I'm sure these were factors being considered by the PICU consultants as to the difficulty of ventilating the patient versus the risk of the patient deteriorating to the point of arrest if I don't. Mm. Um, and I think it's really useful to try to understand that and then unpick it. Um, and you, you know, we, we talk about pattern recognition and experience, but really it's knowing what might happen and weighing up the, the pros and the cons and, and actually working it out for that patient. Yeah, you know, rather than saying, well, when we get to this point, this is what we're going to do. Mm. You know, pros and cons, and, and 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 applying that, I think, is what you need to do. So I think it is it is worth thinking about these things mm. and trying to understand because when you're in that position yourself, you'll be able to start having those those thoughts, and then you won't be in a position of thinking what will happen um, if I'm there on my own. Yeah, you, you'll have that understanding rather than thinking what's next. Yeah, um, you'll think about it. Okay, um, look, I think this has been a really interesting case, uh, and I think it's really obvious that you've learned a lot from it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that, that's very clear. You've read around it. You, you're able to talk about it in, in quite a lot of detail. Um, I do think that our discussion has brought out a bit more information than is in your portfolio, mm -hmm. and I think it might be useful just to put in another entry, just to demonstrate what we've talked about and what you've learned further uh, yeah. from that. I think that would be a useful record for you. Um, but I also wonder if you, you know, you can see the, the benefit perhaps of, of some of the questions I've asked in terms of bringing out your understanding. Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, a lot of the things we've discussed have been, it's sort of like been bothering me in the back of my mind anyway recently. Um, but also, I think discussing it with you, particularly around the stuff around asthma and, and intubation and the risk, I think that's been really helpful to to bring that all to the surface and think about it in a bit more mm. detail um yeah so no absolutely so so i think that for you i think one of the, the next steps in terms of reflective practice is to ask yourself those questions mm. rather than wait for someone else to ask you them ask yourself those questions and put those answers down in your reflection um, a simple way i like to think about it is is rather than describing what happened mm. try to explain why it happened uh, and so answer the question of why rather than what. Mm -hmm. um, some people like to say, you know, answer the, the question in three ways. So what, so what, and then what. Mm -hmm. um, and, and different people have different ways of doing it. But I think those just help you to understand the processes underlying decision making uh, and will allow you to learn even more and demonstrate it yeah. uh, even more. Um, I think what would also help us, you know, to take this forward, I think, would be if we... Um, perhaps have a look at your next reflection as well uh, and, and see how you've put some of these principles into practice. Sure. How would that be? Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, look, thanks for coming around, uh, Asim, and uh, I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Thanks, Malcolm. Cheers. And I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Gajraj for recording that episode for us. 
Join us again next week where we'll have a Dragon Bites Basics episode for you. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.